My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Talking Radical Radio brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Since the beginning of the year, in the show notes each week and on social media, and more recently in the show audio as well, I've been letting folks know that this week's episode is the final episode of Talking Radical Radio's 10-year weekly run. You can learn a bit more about that decision in the post pinned on the show's social media platforms, but here I'll just say that the broader Talking Radical project didn't begin with the show and won't end with it. And lifting up voices from social movements and communities in struggle across so-called Canada will continue to be part of my work. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show over the last decade, and I hope you stay connected via social media, the show's email list, or other methods. I raise this, however, not just to explain why there won't be an episode next week, but because it is relevant to the theme of this week's show. What more fitting way to wrap the series than with an episode on the future of grassroots media? All three of today's guests, Saima Desai, Dave Gray Donald, and Charmaine Khan, are longtime grassroots media makers whose involvement has primarily been in projects towards the more activist and movement-based end of things. Saima Desai currently lives in the Dish With One Spoon territory in Toronto. She was radicalized through her involvement in media as a student at McGill University in Montreal, where she wrote for a publication called the McGill Daily. She spent most of the last five years in Regina, on Treaty 4 territory, as the editor of the magazine Briarpatch, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, Uh, and she's currently on a one-year leave from that position. Dave Gray Donald got his start in grassroots media when, as a climate justice activist in Montreal, he noticed that English-language media was doing a lousy job of covering climate struggles, so he picked up a pen and started writing. A decade later, he is a former publisher of Briarpatch, a board member and volunteer editor at the Media Co-op, and most recently is centrally involved in The Grind, a new free magazine in Toronto. Charmaine Khan was also radicalized through her involvement in grassroots media, which started when she was a teenager in Regina in the 1990s. She wrote for a publication called Prairie Dog, served on the board of Briar Patch, and for many years was extensively involved in the community radio sector. These days, she lives in Toronto. Her involvements in radical organizing and in media work have taken lots of different forms over the years, but her central media involvement since its founding in 2005 has been as an editorial collective member for Upping the Ante, a journal of theory and action, which is a non-academic but intellectually rigorous movement-based publication that offers people involved in movements a pluralist, non-sectarian space to think through theoretical and strategic questions of relevance to their organizing. Uh, And just for full transparency, I too am a board member and volunteer editor at the Media Co-op, and I'm an advisory board member for Upping the Ante. This week, I will forego my usual detailed summary of what you're about to hear, to leave more space for Desai, Gray Donald, and Khan. They talk about their own media work, about the current state of grassroots media across so-called Canada, and about strengthening both grassroots media projects and grassroots movements moving forward. My name is Charmaine. The project I'm part of is Up in the Ante, a journal of theory and action. 
I've been in Toronto since 2005. I dedicate a lot of my time to socialist organizing, and I kind of have it divided up into three parts. Making media, which is through Up in the Ante, and also supporting other leftist activist publications, and then training and education. And my paid work is I'm a bookkeeper for a lot of activist nonprofit organizations in the city. My trajectory with grassroots media started decades ago and actually probably pushed me into more radical politics as a teenager. I was invited to write for an alternative weekly or monthly magazine at the time called Prairie Dog, then was invited to be on the board of Briarpatch Magazine. What was really great was having mentorship and trust in a lot of older media activists to take me into their fold. And it was during that time in the late 90s when I feel like activist media was kind of like at its peak. I think what was important was the more anti-racist and feminist entry point into media, which was around representation and voice and being able to articulate not only lived experience of, you know, racism and sexism and other forms of oppression in the prairies, but just getting the confidence and getting really important skills that I use to this day. Even in activist media, grassroots media, it was quite white and male. It was very, very hard for young women of color to get access to any forms of media, including alternative grassroots media. And I just fell in love with that. And how it led me to the journal was actually thinking about this concept of grassroots theory. That means like organizers or just people on the ground, being able to talk about the world we want, being able to figure out how power operates in our lives that isn't tied to like an academic institution and can be talked about in accessible ways in order to reach people and bring them on side. I moved to BC after my time in the prairies and jumped into community radio a lot, still helping with publications, and then helped found Up in the Ante in 2005. I'm Saima. I'm currently <laughs> living in Toronto on Dish With One Spoon territory. I've spent the last five years living in Regina on Treaty 4 territory. I am a leftist, a media maker. My story dates back to around 2015 at McGill. I started writing for a paper on McGill's campus called the McGill Daily. And the Daily was the place where I first learned how to write, how to interview, how to edit. And it's also where I began getting politically radicalized. So like Charmaine, part of the reason why I've remained working in media is because of what it brought to me and the way that it changed how I understand the world and that really deep-seated understanding that it can do that for other people as well and it continues to do that for other people. And so I was a news reporter for The Daily and then a news editor and then a features editor and I really loved editing. I am a proficient writer but I think a better editor than I am a writer. Not too long after working at The Daily, I became the editor of Briarpatch. I've been the editor for the last five years. Right now, I'm on a one-year leave of absence. I've learned so much from Briarpatch and the community that surrounds Briarpatch. This year is actually Briarpatch's 50th anniversary. I think I will probably remain involved in grassroots media for the rest of my life. I'm Dave Gray-Donald, also in Toronto. 
I'm a journalist, often covering climate, climate justice issues. And on the other side of the media space, I've been involved in the more managey side, business side. I was the publisher of Briarpatch for several years and worked with Saima. And I'm on the board of the media co-op with our lovely host, Scott. And also um, involved in a new print publication, The Grind, a free magazine in Toronto. My journey starts, I'll pick 2014 as a sort of start. I was part of climate justice movements in Quebec. I was living in Montreal and seeing a lot of the activism and it not being reported, especially in English language media. So I started writing about it and then got connected with uh, Media Co-op, with Briar Patch with a lot of the more activist-aligned media. From there, got more and more involved in the media co-op, and then Briar Patch, uh, I was hired as the publisher in 2017. To Charmaine's point about leftist media being very dominated by white guys, I am part of that. Part of my privileges allowed me to be very low paid. I was making like $5,000 a year sometimes, living at home with my mom. So then was able to work in the sector and moved to Toronto in 2020 and then I've just been trying to stay involved in media here and I've taken jobs in other sectors to pay the bills. What's your assessment of the current state of grassroots media in so-called Canada? I would say the status of grassroots media is not as powerful as it used to be. I think the trajectory of activist media is also as strong as our social movements across the country. And right now, I feel like we are in a bit of a low point. I think that grassroots media needs to change and reflect on its basis of unity or its goals. And also the technology maybe that they're using or, you know, how relevant they are in kind of relation to like different social movements. The biggest issue that I find is I feel like in the late 90s, there was an emphasis on building an army of activist journalists, really sharing those skills so that many people could participate. I'm finding right now that a lot of activists would rather just consume, read news, however they get their news, and not really participate in that process. Because for me, activist media isn't just about the production of the media, but also how we organize ourselves. We're finding that just with the proliferation of news now online and through social media, that there isn't much interest in participating in that avenue. It's a constant struggle for my project to get activists and organized revolutions to write. The interest in actually producing has waned. I'm also finding that a lot of activists and progressives have just accepted the role of both public and corporate media as a way to get their news. So rather than activists sharing news from the media co-op or Briar Patch, I'll see them still sharing a lot from CBC or Teen Vogue or even Globe and Mail because, yeah, those media institutions have all the resources. And I'm going to say that the work is bad, but I am finding that there isn't much support from our base as before. In addition to more activists consuming corporate media, we're also either producing more corporate media or on corporate social media channels. So what I'm referring to is when I joined the media co-op in about 2014, there would be a lot of activists, organizers, indie journalists who would, you know, like a rally happened, if an action happened, if there was a march, someone would write some sort of quick write-up about it. 
to provide a different perspective than whatever CTV or CBC was reporting. Whatever the vantage point that the police allow them to view the protest from would be reported by the corporate media and with police talking points, quotes, and then the activist media would report from the activist perspective on the ground. And that sort of activist production of media went away. And I'm trying to understand exactly why. And part of it, I think, is we didn't keep our tools and our organizations really strong. So when Twitter, when Instagram, when those became like really viral and whatever, a lot of people would use those to get their message out. And something like the media co-op, which was having its own internal problems from like 14 to 17, was not a place that people were going to write, to share, whatever. If you could get, you know, a few thousand shares on Instagram, of course, you're going to do that, not post on the media co-op. What has ended up happening is these corporate platforms and also the corporate media itself have become dominant. And there's the other side of this, which is that activists are not so much writing for indie outlets anymore. They're either writing for social media or putting press releases out to corporate media. And also there's been this new level of professionalization of indie media it's great. And I'm part of it is like the grind and other outlets like that. We're trying to pay writers well, have good labor standards, all of that kind of thing. But it does lead to sort of a bit of a difference where activists don't see themselves as writers. There's like a professional sort of sector that does that. And that's different. That's new. That's something else. I think when I started at Briar Patch, it really did seem like a well, like some of the older publications seemed to be struggling or a lot were closing shop and were just getting kind of sluggish at responding to new developments. But in more recent years working at Briar Patch, there's been this small flourishing of new projects like The Hoser and The Grind and Passage, The Maple, Midnight Sun. And so it feels like there's more of us once more. But you're also right that some of those publications are written by a very small number of people who sometimes have some professional journalism training or see themselves as journalists and are not made in the way that some of the older activist media was made by just going out there and trying to convince activists to consider themselves as writers or to write down stuff that they knew and had seen. In Briarpatch's recent 50th anniversary issue, part of that issue was about the state of independent leftist media in Canada as a whole. And part of my research revealed that one big change that there has been is that now for every journalist in Canada, there are roughly 11 people working in marketing, advertising, or PR. So as journalists, we're just vastly, vastly outnumbered by people who are intent on getting governments and corporations and institutions perspectives out there. But also, I think that we're really seeing corporate and public media flailing a little bit struggling with declining revenues and they're turning to all of these models that are actually just kind of pissing their audiences off, like taking local papers and pumping them full of national news and ads. And trust in media is really, really declining, which is both bad for grassroots media because I think when trust in media declines, it hurts all kinds of media. 
But I think it also provides a bit of an opening for us to say, yeah, you are right to be pissed off and distrustful of the media that is full of ads for real estate companies and reports only from the perspective of your boss and only from the perspective of the cops. And so I think that there is something there that grassroots media can tap into amid growing distrust of corporate media. What are you currently doing and what do we as grassroots media makers all need to be doing to strengthen our projects and to contribute to building stronger movements? We have started to integrate different platforms like publishing comics now, like more political comics, because we're finding that graphic novels and also art is growing in popularity, you know, and it wasn't just like we would say relevant, but we're like, oh, let's take advantage of storytellers who are utilizing comics. And then also people are like, well, we don't really read in print anymore. We mostly get stuff from social media. So we had to up our social media game, which when you're doing a publication, social media aspect is like a whole other job. It's so much work, especially if you want to stay a publication. And we're committed to being a print publication, to have something tactile in your hands. Also, a lot of our publications go into prisons who don't have access to internet. And so we're going to maintain that print form. But yeah, our minimum article is 5,000 words. And a lot of people just feel like their capacity to sit down and read through a whole article, not even just a whole publication of our journal, is going down. So yeah, we've been trying to respond to that by, you know, doing pull quotes, stuff on Instagram, and, you know, take out quotes from organizers in different ways. I feel like I'm this like grumpy old man shining at clouds like, oh, the internet's ruining everything I loved. But it's just a challenge for us. Like we have to respond to it. And that's how people are consuming media. And so that's how we've had to do it. I similarly feel torn between producing the kind of media that people consume in the greatest volume and that is easiest to consume, the stuff that's, you know, really shareable on social media that's broken down into bite-sized pieces and is likely to reach people who have not already been reached by our publications and perhaps change their minds versus producing the kind of media that I personally love to produce and read, but understand is sometimes difficult and time-consuming to read. I think it's awesome to try and reach people where they're at. But I also think that we perhaps are sacrificing something really important when we lean all the way into that way of making media and, I guess, accept the fact that people's attention spans are really, really short and they can't be expected to read anything longer than five or ten minutes. Because I've learned the most from articles that are really long and in-depth. I really enjoy reading them. They're the ones where they're most likely sometimes to change my mind because they go in depth and get specific enough that I feel like they're properly substantiated. And I think that one way to try and regain our attention from these corporate social media platforms that seek to turn our attention into a commodity is print. You know, being able to hold something in your hand, not have 200 tabs open and be flicking between them, but just have one thing open in front of you. The media ecosystem has changed significantly. I think about this, especially in terms of Indigenous sovereignty and rights, where like that was just not in mainstream media 15 years ago, really. And, you know, in the last five years, we've seen opinion articles being the front page of the Globe and Mail calling for much more recognition of Indigenous rights and Indigenous authors being on the front page of the Globe and Mail. And there also just is more 
prominent, let's call it progressive or left media. And that just has changed the media landscape. What I think there's a danger of, like sometimes what happens is activism or our beliefs, like we can think of it as a comms battle that everything just happens in the media and it's about winning the media battle and the media narrative. And that's not actually how things change. The part of it, and media is certainly important, but even changing the media landscape doesn't actually fundamentally shift, you know, labor relations under capitalism. It doesn't fundamentally shift colonialism. And there is a bit of a lull in terms of organizing in Canada. And I think sometimes we substitute sending out a tweet that goes viral or doing a publication for organizing. And I think projects like Up in the Ante, Briar Patch, and others are really important because they do talk about organizing in a way that some of the more clickbaity media doesn't. Something that used to happen was more workshops, more outreach, whether it's to university campuses, grassroots groups about what indie media, what grassroots media does, how it can interact with activism, and also just covering that kind of stuff and covering it in new and different ways and getting people excited about the potential that exists within movements. I think that's always been a big part of the work and it remains. Some of the newer publications like Passage or The Maple are very focused on publishing opinion pieces and these sort of timely interventions into conversations that mainstream media is having. While there's some utility to that, we are also losing this ability to do like truly movement journalism and reporting. The more opinionated publications, and some of them do great investigations as well, they're great and they're different from the traditional movement journalism that something like Media Co-op or Briar Patch would do. And I feel like maybe it's an audience thing, or maybe it's a writer thing, I'm not sure, but the movement journalism articles and coverage seems to get less attention these days. And opinion often gets more engagement, both in mainstream press and in left media. But there is still a critical need for showing like how movements happen, what is happening how to get involved, all those kinds of things. It's just that it's less in vogue. I think also having a lot of opinion pieces in our grassroots media, and I'm not saying have no opinion pieces, but having a lot of them or a majority of them it is in the same vein of what Dave talked about, where we sometimes are tending towards thinking that it's a calm struggle and it's not. And part of grassroots media is showing people that it's easy to get involved. And so I think that one of the things that I like about reporting and having people who report for Briar Patch is asking people to go and interview different people. And it's almost a little bit like power mapping, I find, to look at a topic and ask themselves, okay, who's already working on this? Who's been working on this for a long time? who's at different points on the spectrum in terms of support or opposition for this proposal or this idea. And I think those are really good skills for activists to have. I think that writing about events that have happened and people who are involved in various ways helps readers understand various entry points to an issue or a topic or a struggle and also shows just the diversity of people working on any given issue. And it just also encourages us to talk to each other, which I think is a good thing. 
I feel like the rise of opinion pieces and clickbait stuff is something that people also want from activist media or grassroots media. My beliefs is that there are no experts. We're all experts as well. We all have to contribute. And I don't want to like exalt one position because of who they are. But I know that it's very popular. And I think in terms of like how that helps movements grow, I mean, being able to articulate your politics in the world you're fighting for is central to the revolutionary change. Being able to explain power and oppression, like systems that capitalists and colonial powers try to hide every day through mainstream media. And the role for activist media is to be able to like give people the tools to deconstruct that, to explain it, to research it, to reveal it. And that's central to revolutionary change. So the burden on activist media is so much greater than corporate media because we are the J schools. You know, when people come, we have to do the training, there's mentorship. We have to do all that work and do the development on our own, often with no money or very little. And so I think that sets us up for a lot of failure. But I think how we can help movements grow is to not act or operate that we're separate from social movements, you know, so let activists know that we're a resource for them, not only to like read about different social movements, but also explore and gain skills and be able to write, think, research, you know, that intellectual rigor, I feel, which is necessary for a more powerful movement. And I really feel that kind of reflection is necessary for activists to be like, what's working? What's not? How are we articulating our politics? And I feel like the skills they get from being able to write an article goes back into their organizations. I mean, I think there's different aspects to like really help movements grow. I wish there was some sort of activist media fund that people could apply to or just get an acknowledgement of the unpaid work that these publications do, yet provide so many skills to people. Just some sort of pot that we could all access, maybe fundraise to like be able to have more supports for these projects. Yeah, absolutely. Briar Patch has only been able to make it to 50 years in large part because we were able to hire two staff. I was trying to think of, you know, whether I have some kind of grand unified theory of how to make grassroots media more powerful and sustainable, and I don't, but I have a few thoughts. One is that I think we're making a lot of national grassroots media, which is useful in some ways. It's useful to be able to link struggles in different places and look at what's worked and hasn't worked and find the commonalities. And also, if you're reaching such a big potential audience, you have a big potential revenue stream, a lot of potential readers and donors and supporters. But where media is really atrophying and people are really being left behind with very little information is in smaller localities. And it's just providing people with less and less information about what's actually going on in their communities. And I think that that kind of media, which returns our focus to what's happening in our communities, is a good way to use media to help people learn to organize because that's where you start organizing. We've also already started doing this a little bit, but sharing resources between the grassroots media that already exists. This is kind of a nascent project trying to connect left-wing and indie media outlets together and understanding that we don't necessarily always have to reinvent the wheel or every grassroots media outlet doesn't have to cover the same thing, but it's also about figuring out how we can use our resources and our access into various audiences to share those ideas that another outlet has already produced. 
And I think that will contribute to the sustainability of some of these publications and we'll hopefully see fewer publications that have to close up shop. I'll just add people listening, if you've been on the fence about whether to support your local indie media or national indie media, definitely go ahead. This media is only going to exist with support of readers, of listeners. Monthly support is great. One-time donations are great. Your help is appreciated so, so, so much. You have been listening to my interview with Saima Desai of Briarpatch Magazine, Dave Gray Donald of The Media Co-op and The Grind, and Charmine Khan of Upping the Ante. And before I sign off, a final thank you to all of you for listening and for supporting Talking Radical Radio over the last 10 years. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.